And so I interviewed this uh, other woman whose case is in the court system right now. Right. And uh, then the other side, the prosecution side, notified her lawyer saying that if that podcast is published, uh, you're going to go to jail, even though she's not under any uh, media constrictions. Um, she didn't break any laws, but this is what we're dealing with in the UK, Scott. This is they come down on you hard when you speak up about the truth. They smear. I mean, I've, I've been smeared, threatened, had false allegations, had the police round, uh, issued me with a community protection warning, which is a joke because it's the community that needs protecting from those doctors up the road. Um, this is what happens in the UK. So the more you expose it, quite frankly, the better. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, counselor by day, podcast host by night, patient advocate the rest of the time. In today's episode, I interview Gregory Hartley Brewer, a man from Bath in the United Kingdom. In 2005, Gregory was bitten by a tick in his backyard and developed Lyme symptoms. In spite of this, the doctors refused to diagnose him with Lyme nor provide any Lyme treatment. Years go by. In 2009, Gregory is once again bitten by a tick in his backyard, goes to a different doctor who does diagnose Lyme, unfortunately doesn't give him enough medication for enough length of time, so he's undertreated. Meanwhile, his own doctors seem to be denying that they've had any conversations about Lyme with Gregory. And the more he investigates, the more he realizes something's not right. And one day he has a eureka moment and realizes what's going on and the motivation behind his doctors and why his medical records are incomplete. You can subscribe to Medical Error Interviews on iTunes and leave a kind review. You can also support Medical Error Interviews by becoming a patron. If you go to patreon.com slash medicalerrorinterviews, you can become a premium patron and get early access and video versions of the podcasts. If you are struggling with medical error or other life challenges and need an experienced counselor, 
you can book an online video appointment with me at my website, remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Gregory Hartley Brewer. So th thanks for taking time to chat with me today and share your story. Um, I, I like to start my interviews back to when you were a childhood. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Um, I was born in Birmingham in the UK in the Midlands. I uh, lived there till about the age of eight. Fairly happy childhood, enjoyed myself. Um, then we moved to the States for a couple of years because of my stepfather's work. Um, came back and lived in London for a year from the ages of 10 to 11. And then from London moved to Bath for secondary school and stayed in Bath till I was about 19. Um, overall, fairly sort of happy childhood. My parents were divorced when I was very young. Um, had a stepfather after that and a stepmother after that. Um, yeah, and that's about it really. Fairly sort of middle class upbringing, you know, the usual sort of standard fare really. Uh, and were you sporty or academic or both? Um, I was more sporty than academic, let's put it that way. I, I did like my football. I was a good goalkeeper, played uh, for a few teams. I liked athletics. Um, and it was a boys' school, so it was very sort of sports orientated. So that quite suited me, to be honest. Although, of course, when you got to the age where you're interested in girls, it didn't particularly help you very much. But... <laughs> uh, and then you went off to university? I... Oh, I was supposed to go to university, but um, did badly in my A levels, as we have here, which is the precursor to going to university. I'd sort of found um, drinking girls and smoking by that age, so I wasn't really uh, getting down to studies, shall we say. And so what did you do in your young adulthood? Um, basically, I did sort of an, an unending summer jobs, bar work, nightclub work, building work, anything that sort of basically wasn't a career, unfortunately. And uh, I find myself today at the age of 52 still sort of in that same process, never really found my niche, to be honest. So. Uh, apart from working for the Cylinders Advice Bureau in Bath, um, which advises people on their problems, which, which was voluntary, but that's the best thing I ever did, most rewarding, most challenging, and the thing I really, really enjoyed. Oh, what did you like about that job? It was just the fact you didn't know who was coming through the door, what their problems were going to be, and it was your job to try and help them and um, take some weight off their shoulders so when they left, they were a bit happier and smiling or thankful or whatever. So, yeah, it was, it was a very rewarding, rewarding job. Yeah, meaningful. Hmm. Uh, so you're 52 now, and uh, tell us about your health problems. They started quite a while ago. Yeah, the first is in 2005 when it started. Um, I got bitten by a tick in the field behind my house. At this time, of course, I didn't know we had ticks in the area or know about Lyme disease. So I presented, um, I, I first of all had a rash and flu-like aches, which I dismissed. They came and went fairly quickly. And then at one point in April 2005, I collapsed in the kitchen with stabbing chest pain, which was literally like being stabbed in the chest twice with a knife. And at that point, I thought I was about to die. I thought I was about to have a heart attack or something. Um, and I collapsed on the floor and it just stopped. And I picked myself up and I thought, oh, yeah, that's a bit strange. What, what on earth is that? To the second GP there. And I said I'd had a rash and flu like aches. And she immediately said to me, that sounds like Lyme disease. But then in the next sentence said, but you can't have it because you're not seriously ill. And that was the end of the conversation. So that was left like that. And then a few weeks later, I went back and I said, look, I think it is Lyme disease. And she got angry with me. She said, you can't have Lyme disease. Um, if you had Lyme disease, you'll be very, very ill. And again, that was the end of the conversation. Now they're doctors. I'm a lay person. I don't know about Lyme disease. 
Um, so I took it at face value. Um, but with hindsight, what we'll get onto later, I realized that wasn't about the clinical evidence at the time. It was about her reputation. She didn't at that stage want to admit a mistake that was only four weeks old. This is how utterly, utterly bizarre these doctors are. Their reputations come before everything. Patient safety, patient harm, et cetera, et cetera. So instead of just putting a hand on and saying, okay, let's check, see if this is Lyme disease. She said, the test is very expensive. I'm not going to give it to you because I don't think you've got it. So I had to leave the surgery at this point, believing I didn't have Lyme disease based on what she told me. But it was just about protecting her reputation because she didn't want to admit a mistake that was only four weeks old at that stage. Wow. So that's in 2005. Yeah, you were bitten in the fall of 2004. Uh, but no, that, that was 2005, um, the summer of. Um, and subsequently, after my notes a little while later, and those consultations were missing. And I thought it was a bit strange. Why would they be missing? But again, I left it because of this belief they're doctors and they're doing the right thing and they know what they're doing. There can't be a, there can't be a nefarious reason for that. Um, so that was 2005. I, I started getting all symptoms of Lyme disease, peripheral neuropathy in the legs, um, palpitations, chest pain, which I subsequently learned was pericarditis. Um, anxiety from Lyme encephalopathy and low-grade Lyme meningitis, headaches, sore shoulders. Um, and this carried on and on. And I went back to them saying, look, I'm feeling anxious, etc." And by 2008, I was in bits, basically. And I went back to the doctor again and said, look, this couldn't be Lyme disease, could it? But I was so reticent to raise it because of the way they surmised people. They just said, you're an idiot. You know, they basically said, you're an idiot. You can't have Lyme disease. You'll be seriously ill. You don't get it in this country. It's so rare, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they just wouldn't accept it could be Lyme disease. So, Greg, so during all of these years when you're feeling sick, what sort of knock-on effects did that have on your work, social life, physical ability? Um, it, it just made you feel totally ill at ease, totally ill at ease. You would, it changes your disposition. So from 2005, when I went from being a social character with a wide group of friends going out all the time, to 2008, I'd, I'd stopped going out. Um, whenever I went out, I felt anxious in crowds. Um, and then I thought it was just me, so I stopped going out. So then I'd just meet friends at their houses, but again started to feel anxious just around at my friends' houses. And I thought, you know, what is going on here? So I stopped going out. Um, and obviously people stop calling you because you stopped coming out and it's a, it's a vicious circle. And um, your group of friends become smaller and smaller just because you lose contact with them because you're not socializing. Um, uh, can we uh, sort of unpack the anxiousness you were feeling i sort of think there are, for myself and from folks that i've worked with uh, i sort of discern anxiety from stress where stress is something that's external going on uh, there's a lot of pressure at work you're under a deadline you have a fight with your partner that's an external sort of stress anxiety is more of a physiological reaction that has no external sort of trigger it's uh there's something dysfunctional within the nervous system creating that anxious bodily feeling yeah um well this the the, the second part there is the one that fitted me because i was going to say that when i had these bouts of anxiety i wasn't feeling depressed or down or anxious about anything i wasn't doing anything that was nervous making or making me feel distressed or anxious and it would just literally come over my body in a wave 
and you'd grab hold of the kitchen table and go, oh God, what is that? And it would come and go quite quickly and dissipate and then come back again. And there'd be no rhyme or reason for it. But it definitely, as you said in your second part of the, your response there, it has a physiological effect. You could feel it's like my body is doing something. It's not my head feeling anxious because I'm doing something that's nervous making or anything like that. Um, it just, it's a physical deep seated feeling that was, I now know due, due, due to the bacteria acting on my brain. Um, so yeah, you're right with that. I mean, there, there weren't really any outside stress factors at that point, to be honest, um, because my life was being subsumed by the symptoms of Lyme disease. Um, so what were some of your other physical symptoms you mentioned before about peripheral neuropathy? Folks may not be familiar with that term. What is that? Okay, that's when you get sensory disturbances in your limbs, so either arm or legs, and you get shooting pains at night, uh, you can get tingling, you can get a feeling your leg is being squeezed and crushed, but at the same time it wants to explode. Um, you're getting these strange things, and that's simply because the actual physical nerve in your, in your limbs is being attacked by the bacteria, which is causing that sensory disruption. Um, and again, that can come on for hours or minutes. Um, and there's no real rhyme or reason as to why it comes on. It just comes on and then goes, um, comes back again in another limb, perhaps. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it hurts to walk sometimes when I had it. Um, and it just, it just makes you feel again, very strange. What is going on? Because all these symptoms are so disparate and you think they're not inter in interconnected. You're thinking like, you're feeling like you're falling apart. All these things come along, they go, and then you think I better go to the doctor but then it dissipates, so you don't go to the doctor. And then it comes back again, it's a different thing, and then you think, I better go to the doctor. But bearing in mind at this stage, my doctors were so dismissive of Lyme disease. Um, after 2008, I didn't mention it again for a while because they literally just looked at me like I was a, a bloody idiot suggesting I was from Mars or something. It was just, uh, it was you know, very depressing, quite frankly. And I was in bits, I'd be sitting in front of the computer at home in tears, thinking what's wrong with me, you know. I don't feel right. I feel anxious all the time. The doctors are telling me it's nothing to do with anything. It's just me feeling anxious. And I'm telling them, look, this is not me. This is something else that's causing. And at this point in 2008, this doctor who I'd seen most, most of the time must have known there was a chance those symptoms were Lyme disease. They would have to be utterly, utterly certifiably incompetent not to have considered those symptoms were Lyme disease. And this gets back to them protecting their reputations. And so is this the same physician that uh, refused to change her mind after four weeks? Yeah. Let, me, let me just say this, this practice is only a small practice of 3,000 patients. So they have two senior partners and one other employed salaried GP most of the time. So there's only three GPs there. Um, and these two senior partners were the ones I usually saw. Um, but specifically this second lady who's the one I normally saw. Um, and she was the one that denied it all the time. Okay, so 2005, no, you don't have Lyme, and now we're up to 2008, 2009? Yeah, that's correct. Then in 2009, I was bitten again by a tick on the same field behind my house. Um, this time, I, I noticed a rash on the inside of my arm up here, an erythromigrans rash. So I went, this was a Sunday, so I went to an out-of-hours health centre in Bath. This lady diagnosed Lyme disease immediately, um, but only gave me one week's of doxycycline antibiotic treatment, and it should have been two per National Institute of Clinical Excellence guidelines at the time. Um, but at the time, and they also, this doctor also sent a note to my surgery as my registered practice to say, look, this guy's got Lyme disease, you need to follow up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My practice didn't follow up. 
I, I didn't see this note that was sent to the practice. So I assumed I'd been given the correct treatment at this time. Subsequently, about an unknown time after that nine to 12 months, I realized that one week was an inadequate treatment. My symptoms were increasing again. So I went back to the same GP and said, look, I think I've got Lyme disease. Again, the eye roll went to the ceiling. You know, what are you talking about? You're a fool. Um, and I, she said, why do you think you've got Lyme disease? And I said, because of the symptoms. And I've had a diagnosis on my record from 2009 that was inadequately treated. She then checked my record and came back and said, okay, but just because you've had a diagnosis of Lyme disease and it was inadequately treated, doesn't mean you've got it now. And then I said to her, and also, um, I've noticed in my notes, we've discussed this on multiple occasions, it's never in my notes about Lyme disease. Why is that? And she goes, I decide what goes in your notes. And I said, well, why haven't you put it in there? And she said, because I don't believe you've got it. And I said, look, I would like it put in my notes that I think I've got Lyme disease. At that point, she said, if you want me to remain as your doctor, you've got to stop thinking everything is Lyme disease. Now, at this point, you might be saying, well, why didn't you leave the surgery and go somewhere else? Because I, I don't know how Lyme patients are treated at this particular time. I don't know how dismissive doctors are generally. And I assumed I'd get the same treatment at the next surgery I went to. So I stuck with what I knew um, and she again completely denied the Lyme disease. Again, this consultation subsequently doesn't appear in my notes and up to December 2014, there is no discussion of Lyme disease in my notes at all from 2005 to 2014. They, they just don't exist. Nothing at all. Wow, that is just so shocking. I mean, there's already in your story, there's so many ways that medical errors have occurred from the denial from, you know, giving the wrong dosage or the for the length of time for the bacteria stuff, uh, the continuous denial, the not recording in your your notes. Oh, wow, it's just they're compounding the error. Absolutely. But they're not recording in the notes. Again, I thought at the time was of because of the clinical insignificance of my symptoms. But subsequently, again, she didn't want it recorded in the notes in case it came to bite her back on the ass again later. Because if she's recorded in the notes at any point during those discussions and subsequently I'm diagnosed with Lyme disease, then questions would be asked of her. Well, why didn't you at least do the test for um, the bacteria? Which, as you know, is completely unreliable anyway, but at least offer the test. And she, they demonstrated willful lack of insight to reflect on my symptoms because they knew if they did at any point, then they could become clinically negligent from 2009 onwards when they didn't follow up on that diagnosis, which, by the way, they both signed off on at the time, but didn't follow up. So at this point, I stopped going to see this female doctor. I go and see the junior salary GP at the time. So this is by 2012 now, and I'm saying, look, I've got a huge amount of anxiety again. I'm getting leg pains, et cetera, et cetera, chest pain. And, and I, I, I'm almost apologetic. I say to him, I know, I know you probably think I'm mad, but it couldn't be Lyme disease, could it? And he goes, no, no, of course it can't be Lyme disease. Because this is UK Lyme illiterate. We, we are so Lyme illiterate in this country that GPs generally miss the condition and if someone returns with unexplained symptoms, they then don't even consider Lyme disease as a possibility, even though Bath is a high-risk endemic area, I've since come to learn. But there's no public signs anywhere informing people of that. Um, and Public Health England, who are the body responsible for dealing with Lyme disease, which is a national organisation in England, actually stopped Bath public health team um, from putting up signs in 23 locations 
after a confidential report from PHE, a field study of Bath was taking place showing high concentration of ticks and the bacteria. Um, Bath um, public health team were going to put signs up, but, but Public Health England persuaded them not to for some reason, even though Public Health England argue public awareness is key. So without the signs, I didn't know I could possibly have Lyme disease. If there had been a sign in the field in 2005 or any signs anywhere in Bath, the first thing you would recognise when you've been out in a green space and come back at a point later on, you get flu-like aches and a rash, you are going to know immediately you've got a chance of Lyme disease. You're going to go to the doctor, tell them what's happened, and they're going to provide the correct treatment. So without the signs in the public domain, and with GPs being so unaware of it, it's just this horrible, vicious circle together of ignorance of Lyme that will lead to many, many, many patients in Bath now untreated with Lyme disease or indeed wrongly diagnosed with something else. And it is, it is a national scandal in this country how many Lyme patients there are who will have the wrong treatment, not be treated or be treated late. Wow, that is so very frightening. And I'm on the other side of the Atlantic and <laughs> it's still very frightening. It is. I mean, you guys in Canada are much better at Lyme disease, aren't you? You're, you're sort of more aware of it. Is that, is that correct or am I assuming that? No, for, for many years, they thought Lyme stopped at the American border because, you know, for whatever reasons, that logic held up for quite a while. Um, and, and then... Pardon me? Because ticks do have to have passports before they cross the border. That's right, exactly. Um, and then a couple of years ago, there was a big push for a uh, sort of a national um, agenda for Lyme, but the government didn't really uh, follow what the Lyme community was hoping for. And so they felt quite betrayed by the government. So, you know, it's not only the UK's health department that's not really doing their job very well. I mean, it, it's, it's a very unrecognized, um, I mean, th th there are lots of known unknowns, as that horrible man Rumsfeld once said about Lyme disease, um, uh, and the science is out, and unfortunately Public Health England in, in the UK sticks with the science of the status quo, which, well, actually, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence guidelines just changed this April, the last April, and now they stated that relapse can occur, and you are allowed a second bout of four weeks of antibiotics. But that's only just changed. Prior to that, you'd have your four weeks and then say, bugger off, you're not getting any more, can't possibly have Lyme disease, it's not a persistent infection. And this was even happening to patients who were treated very late, so in my case, 10 and a half years. Um, and they just weren't accepting that patients were reporting the symptoms accurately. And instead, they'd call the patient some other medical symptom or they'd diagnose ME, as you well know, it's wrongly diagnosed quite frequently. Um, and any other condition that is sort of hard to explain without a diagnostic test. Um, and that is still going on today. But luckily, I found GPs at my new practice who were willing to listen to me. And since I moved to them in um, March 2016, they've treated me as and when I turn up and say, look, I need some more antibiotics. So I get about two to three lots of antibiotics a year at the moment, which seems to be managing the symptoms. It's not getting rid of it. I've still got it. It keeps coming back. Um, but it manages the symptoms. For example, in um, February 2018, I had one of the first overt symptoms of Lyme disease, which is a macular erythema on the back of my hand, which is a macular erythema is a sign of systemic disease. And there's about 17 of them you can have. And as all the other 16 had been excluded, and I had an overt symptom of uh, systemic disease, 
that, that assisted me in using that clinical evidence to get a diagnosis of Lyme disease. If I didn't have that macular erythema, I don't think to this day I would now have that diagnosis of, of Lyme disease. I'd still be being treated by my GPs, but it, but it would be without a diagnosis. So I was very lucky in that regard. So how did you find these GPs? Because I would imagine they're in great demand. Indeed. I read a research piece not so long ago that said approximately 300 GPs in the UK are treating patients as if they've got persistent Lyme disease. But they are doing it out of protocol. They're doing it outside nice guidelines because they are in contact with the patient face to face. They can see the patient's suffering, their symptoms, the logic of the patient's arguments. Um, and they are treating. So luckily, my GP listened. Um, he knew about some of the issues that occurred at the previous practice in terms of withholding treatment, denying treatment. So he was sympathetic in that regard. Um, and the, he continues to this day to treat me. And my diagnosis last October, of course, helps that um, because now I go back and I should get the, the required treatment when I go, um, which is good, um, which lots of Lyme patients don't get. And they have to suffer in silence without getting the treatment they need. There's a, uh, I have a friend in the East Coast of Canada uh, who had to go to the Stanford Clinic in California to get proper testing, and she found out that although she didn't have Lyme, she had three other tick infections, right. infections. yeah, so now she's getting those treated. Well, that's good. Um, uh, is there the technology in the UK to get tested for other tick um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been tested for everything, all, all the co-infections that are going, all negative. Um, but for some reason, um, lots of patients in the UK get a diagnosis from Europe. Now, sometimes that's from labs that haven't got the same standard of accreditation, but other times it is from labs that have the same high standard of accreditation. And they're coming back with massively positive results, whereas Public Health England, which tests the disease at the rare and imported pathogens lab in, in Wiltshire, they're all coming back negative with no bands at all, no bands of um, antibodies that prove you've got the disease. So there's something going wrong with the testing in the UK because they're either setting it at such a high limit and excluding lots of bands compared to Europe where lots of these UK patients are being diagnosed with the disease. So it's a bit of a conundrum and why is this happening? I mean, it goes along with Public Health England not wanting to put up signs about the disease to inform the public. Um, they don't want to treat long-term patients with negative serology, um, even though they know the tests are unreliable. They're overly dependent on the tests to the exclusion of the clinical symptoms. Now, as you know, there are lots of diseases out there that can be diagnosed, that have to be diagnosed on symptoms alone because there's no diagnostic test. And with Lyme disease, I would argue nowadays, with the tests being so inaccurate, that the diagnosis should be made on the clinical symptoms alone and use the test to support that diagnosis, but not to completely exclude it. Because you can have a positive test for Lyme disease and not have the disease because you produced antibodies, but you've got rid of the bacteria. But equally, you can have um, uh, no antibodies, but still have the disease. So because your immune response hasn't um, produced a result that is measurable by the ELISA or Western blot test. So it, it, it is a scandal. There are thousands of people in the UK with Lyme disease who are not getting the treatment they need. And that's magnified in the USA, the Canada, you know, Europe, particularly Central Europe. But in Central Europe, they're much wiser about Lyme disease and they know far more about it and they're, because it's a higher risk over there. So they're more au fait with dealing with it quickly. But, but in the UK, people are suffering and that's a fact. So Greg, for not only Lyme disease and ME and a bunch of other diseases that don't have a 
diagnostic biomarker and that, like you say, that they need to be diagnosed through clinical symptoms. Why do you think that physicians tend to, by and large, default to psychological, even though the patient is presenting with a lot of physical symptoms? <clears throat> I think it's because they don't know. When a doctor doesn't know something, when it's, when it's a science and you have to be very exact and, and precise with it, it discombobulates them. They don't know what to do when the science is telling them one thing and the patient is telling them something else. So what they do is they fall back onto the science, which is absolutely poor in Lyme disease, as all the studies show um, that the evidence for persistent infection, the evidence for um, um, the infection in general is, 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 and the research of that is extremely poor. The NICE guidelines state there is really no evidence to support what we're proposing, but we have to propose something. So doctors fall back on this, they're right, the patient doesn't know what they're talking about, even though they're reporting all these symptoms all the time. And because they can't see the symptoms, they put it down to some other symptom that is unidentifiable. Or worse, the patient has psychological issues and is just hypersensitive, um, you know, um, wants attention, you know, well, whatever. So, you know, so that, that, is, that is one of the problems. But you, you know Rob Hackett, is that right? You know Rob Hackett, patient safe on Twitter? He's an Australian uh, medic. No, I don't. Oh, right, because I, 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 tweet, I tweeted him via you yesterday, I think. And basically he's, he's all for aviation industry standards within medicine, because of course, as you know, aviation standards are amazing, you know, because you can't let a plane drop out of the sky. Whereas doctors with one individual patient can kill them on the operating table because they haven't got those aviation standards in place. I tweeted him your tweet about the black box in Ottawa in the hospital. They were recording the, in the operating room. He was very impressed by that. Um, and he, he, he is someone who talks about the effects and what stops, what harms patients. Why, is there, why are there patient safety issues? One of them is the bystander effect. One of them is ego. And in my case with these GPs, it was all to do with reputation and ego. They couldn't admit they were wrong. And because of that, they deliberately harmed a patient when all they had to do is put their hands up and say, we made a mistake. That would be the end of the matter. But instead, they went about in an awful conspiracy that was cruel, inhuman and degrading to leave me ill deliberately. And unless I'd got a second opinion after 12 months, they would, I would still be ill with the disease, returning to the surgery, saying these exact same symptoms again. And they'd be saying, you haven't got Lyme disease, you haven't got Lyme disease. And they'd be saying, I'm psychologically making it up or it's something else, et cetera, et cetera. So he's, he's a very good chap to follow, actually, Rob Hackett. And basically, this, in this case, it's all about ego and reputation because they could not admit they'd made a mistake. And then they sat around in December 2014, conspiring, um, and um, said, look, we can't let this guy get a diagnosis, withhold the clinical history, including the previous clinical diagnosis from the two ID infectious diseases experts who were dealing with my case. Um, sorry, go on. Yeah, and my mouth just dropped open there because I think you're saying that they didn't hand over uh, big chunks of your medical record to the infectious disease specialist? What happened in December 2014, I had negative serology. I went to the locum because I knew he would listen to me. I said, look, but basically I went to the locum first. He wrongly diagnosed prostatitis, gave me an antibiotic for prostatitis. 
which I had a reaction to because it wasn't prostatitis, it was Lyme disease that I had. So I then went back to him and said, look, this is Lyme disease. He immediately believed me. He immediately treated me, accepted what I was saying, but only gave me two weeks treatment. Now, this is, uh, this is obviously not enough treatment for late stage Lyme disease, but I had a blood test by this stage. My serology was negative. So I went back to the GPs and said, look, I've got Lyme disease. They said, no, your serology is negative. So I went home feeling absolutely depressed, distressed, et cetera, et cetera. Then I did some research and discovered Public Health England's own GP referral pathway, which explicitly states that an adequate treatment can abrogate the immune response causing negative serology. So I had to research this. I then presented it to the two corrupt partner GPs. They then were compelled to organize a discussion with Public Health England, They're a consultant at Public Health England about Lyme disease. They got their junior salary GP, who had only just joined the surgery in November 2014, to then, over July and August, withhold multiple clinical symptoms, including that previous clinical diagnosis and inadequate treatment from the PHE consultant. So he denied me treatment in August 2015, without being told about my previous clinical diagnosis. So they, they, and the consultation was only called because of this inadequate treatment leading to negative serology is a reason for still having the disease. But in, that, in the multiple consultations in July and August, he was not told about that previous clinical diagnosis, which explained my negative serology due to the inadequate treatment. And um, he never once mentions in the notes or in the emails, telephone calls, a clinical diagnosis, the erythromigrans rash, inadequate treatment, because he's an expert. So his clinical imperatives are, if I've been inadequately treated, he has to state that is inadequate treatment. And he has to state that can abrogate the immune response and explain the ongoing symptoms and negative serology. But he never does because he's not told. So I said at the end of this consultation with the GP, I said, I don't understand how treatment can't be warranted because I've had a clinical diagnosis of the disease. It was inadequately treated. It explains the ongoing symptoms and my negative serology. And the GP just put her arms up like this and said, well, maybe he just thinks there's not enough clinical evidence. And she had knowingly, at the behest of the two senior partners, withheld all that clinical information to deny me a diagnosis. So at this point, I, I, you know, this is August. I think, oh, Christ, how the hell am I ever gonna get a treatment for this disease? And then I find a group called Lyme Disease Action um who who help people in the uk get a diagnosis so i explained to them the situation in november 2015 they go to my they write a letter to my surgery saying look all his symptoms are entirely consistent with late stage lyme disease because of course she's been told about the clinical diagnosis and adequate treatment by me so she then consults with the phe consultant she recognizes straight away that he hasn't been told about all that clinical history because she emails me and says, Greg, your, your, your EM rash in October 2009 was diagnosed by a GP, wasn't it? And I said, absolutely. And I quoted from the notes and gave it to her. And I ended that email by saying, um, don't tell me they're disputing that now as well. Little did I know they weren't disputing it. They simply weren't telling the doctor about that previous diagnosis. So at this point, um, there's communication between the PHE consultant and the Lyme disease action consultant. And she's aware that he does not know about the clinical diagnosis. She's worked out now what's going on. He, he hasn't got a clue at this stage. 
And he denies treatment again, but leaves it up to the GP to treat. He actually leaves the decision to the GP to treat. And the GP says, nothing to treat here. We're not going to treat. Um, and then the Lyme Disease Action Consultant emails this doctor with a quote from the PHE consultant that he made to her in an email. Basically, the PHE consultant states to Lyme Disease Action, his GP now says the rash is more predominant in his story than before. I'm what? That doesn't sound right. This is a clinical diagnosis on the record, and he's being told it's a rash that's more predominant than my story than before. It doesn't make sense. It's a, it's a clinical diagnosis on the record. A Lyme expert wouldn't say that because they would know one week was inadequate treatment, and he would know an erythromigrans rash is a diagnosis of Lyme disease, but he doesn't mention that anywhere at any time. So this GP now knows clearly that the Lyme disease action consultant knows about my full clinical history, knows the LDA consultant now knows that the PHE consultant doesn't know about the clinical diagnosis. So she's now got her over a barrel because if they decide not to treat now, she could speak up and report what's going on. As it turned out, she decided to remain silent because she didn't want to report three GPs for criminal misconduct. So I can now get treatment from the surgery because they've got no choice. If they don't treat, they risk a complaint from this LDA consultant stating that you know, you've lied to this other consultant about the treatment. So I get the treatment I need, um, which, is, which is four weeks of antibiotics. Um, so, so Greg, so you, you're having to go to see the doctors that had been denying you the treatment for all of this time? So you're going into a hostile environment. Well, but of course, I didn't know they were denying it this time. Um, I just thought they were acting rather strangely and inappropriately, but I didn't think they were withholding clinical history. Um, and because I was quite able, I found a second opinion. But if I hadn't found a second opinion, I would still be ill and untreated and going to the same surgery with them saying it's not Lyme disease. And it was only because of that quote about um, his GP now says the rash is more predominant in his story than before that I saw in my notes, I thought this doesn't sound right. So I emailed the PHE consultant with my full clinical history saying, why did you make that quote? It implies I haven't had a clinical diagnosis. He responds 20 minutes later and says, I am sorry. There does appear to have been some disparity in the various discussions around your symptoms. Now, not one discussion, not a disparity, but some disparity in all the discussions around your symptoms in multiple emails and telephone calls. Unknown to me until much later, he then emails this GP immediately with the response he's just given me with an angry for your information. So he's now just told this GP what he's now told me. So the GP now knows that I'm aware he wasn't given the full clinical history. Um, which produces a fraudulent document further down the line, but that's, that's further down the line to come to. But uh, so at this point, I, I, I know the, the, their behavior appears willful because this guy clearly hasn't got the full clinical history, but I don't know why. And I think why would doctors not give the full clinical history um, to the consultant? And also at this time, LDA email me and say, um, the GP clearly doesn't want to speak to our doctor. She wants to speak to the PHE consultant. I wonder why. And also the, the GP emails the PHE consultant that says, I thought you were going to speak to them regarding LDA. So she doesn't want to speak to this doctor. She doesn't want to email this doctor because she knows that this doctor, the LDA doctor, has my full history. Whereas she knows she's given a completely willfully incorrect history to the um, PHE consultant. So she wants the PHE consultant 
to repeat what she's told him to the LDA consultant without her getting involved so that she doesn't have to tell lies to the LDA consultant as well. Um, but it's such a complicated web, it gets even worse after that, to be honest, because as I say, I now know it appears willful, but I don't know why. So I complained to the NHS. They produced a first review in March 2016, which is so corrupt. It's less than one page and simply states the first time Lyme disease was mentioned was in December 2014, ignoring completely the clinical diagnosis from 2009 on my record. So I then complain about this response. Um, I get a much more detailed response. They now go to town on my complaint because they know I think something's up. They know I'm getting close to working out what's happened. And this so is the NHS, this is the, the National NHS. Health Service. Correct, National Health Service of England, yeah, who actually run the primary services of GP care. They're, they're employed, the GPs are employed by NHSE. Um, so they now produce a 10-page report from a senior medical director from the southeast of England who's come to do this um, review. And in this review, <coughs> he basically dismisses all my symptoms as could be anything, not, not, not indicative of Lyme disease, and basically places all the um, legal duty of care on the patient. He turns around and says, well, I should have gone back to the surgery after the 2009 diagnosis. I should have reported it was inadequately treated, which, of course, I didn't know at the time. And he leaves it at this. He, he, in, in the report, he, he states that the two GPs did sign off on the diagnosis, but then later in the report says, the GP should have been aware another GP had thought of the diagnosis of Lyme disease, but doesn't actually answer the question. He just leaves it as they should have been aware. Well, they were aware, they signed off on it twice, and what would that mean if they'd done that and not followed up? That is clinical negligence. So he covered that up, NHSE covered it up. So now in July 2018, NHSE have totally covered it up. Um, but then I had my eureka moment. I can even remember the day. It was July the 27th, 2016. I'm writing another letter to the medical director of the Southwest region who's, who's covered up my case. And, and um, I just suddenly work out what happens if I'm diagnosed in 2015. It means I've got Lyme disease and I've had it since 2009. So what does that mean? It's not a mistake. What does that mean? It means that's an unreasonable delay in diagnosis and treatment. I immediately recognize straight away by making that quote, it's clinical negligence. And if I'm not diagnosed in 2015, there's no negligence from 2009 onwards. So immediately I had my motive and that motive explained every single act they'd committed. The, 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 the discussion in the notes where it's all missing, her responses to me in person in the surgery, the strange quote in the notes, and, and of course, Dr. Dryden saying there is some disparity, oh, I just named him, sorry, the PHU consultant. Um, there, is some, there is some disparity, there is disparity in the, in, in the symptoms given to me, et cetera, et cetera. So I now had a motive for all their actions, which was to cover their asses to prevent activation of clinical negligence, going back to 2009. So everything fell into place now. So I now knew what I was up against, which is not just a mistake, it's a conspiracy to deny an ill patient the treatment they need, which is so, so left field from doctor intent to doctor what you're supposed to do as a doctor do no harm they actually must have sat down at some point and said right we are going to deny this patient the treatment he needs to prevent activation of negligence and i mean it's a serious disease how can they do that it's just utterly bizarre and how far do you think this uh, effort to deny that you have Lyme extends? It's obviously within that uh, doctor's office, mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like it's also reaching into the NHS. Well, the NHS um, is a notorious organization for covering up mistakes and attacking whistleblowers, and either medics or patients, et cetera, et cetera. There's a culture of defend, deny, delay. 
Um, <clears throat> and uh, at this point, they worked out before me what the GPs had done because they're experienced at this. They've got decades of experience. They know what GPs get up to. So they did everything out in their power to, to cover it up. Um, and at this point, um, um, at this point, I, I decided to have to investigate myself. So I then collected um, various emails under what's called a subject access request in this country. You get your personal data. This is when I got in November 2016 the response from the Public Health England. And I learned that he had emailed the GP five minutes after he'd emailed me about the disparity in symptoms with an angry email to her. They also denied receiving a alleged response from the doctor at the time to that email. Basically, the doctor at the time um, wrote uh, a fraudulent email to, this G, to, to the PHE consultant, but never sent it. And this is a fraudulent document purporting to be um, a response to the, to the PHE consultant saying, um, we discussed his EM rash, we discussed all this, as you know, and, if, if, and, and, and it was a complete, the email doesn't make sense whatsoever. But this email was only produced in November because in the um, July review from the uh, NHSE, uh, the GPs admitted in it, they said, we acknowledge there is a quote in the notes which suggests um, PHE consultant has the wrong impression of your clinical history. We have since written to him to correct that wrong impression. So they were blaming the PHE guy for not giving me the diagnosis that I needed because he, he wasn't given the correct history and they knew that. So then I searched for this letter from NHSE. Nobody could find it. So in November 2016, I, I um, emailed the surgery and asked for, under a subject access request to see sight of this letter. This is actually when they produced that fraudulent document purporting to be um, a response to the uh, email from PHE in November two, in, when they sent me the email about there is a disparity in symptoms. And then he sent it five minutes later to the doctor in February 2016. This November email they made up then and appeared to be attached to the email train um, that he had that we had produced from me to this doctorate PHE PHE to the GP surgery and they then attached this email to the end of that back to him but it never was never sent because PHE denied denies deny receiving it so this was a fraudulent document to protect their position because of course they couldn't write to him um, and say you got it wrong because he would say well hold on a second I haven't got it wrong at all this is the history you told me and it risked exposure of their crimes further if they did actually write to him, which is why they didn't write to him because it would be exposed, it would expose the misconduct further. So it's a very complicated story, Scott, and there's lots of, uh, lots of things involved here, but it goes on and on, to be honest. So where are you now with, uh, with all of this medical challenges and institutional challenges? And I think now we're getting into legal challenges. Absolutely. So I, I do more research. I, I, I collect as much evidence as I can. I then submitted evidence. I submit an evidence file to the Ombudsman, the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman, and to the General Medical Council, which regulates doctors in December 2016, with all these strange notes, with all these quotes from um, from LDA and from PHE. And I've forgotten to mention, actually, LDA said when I, I asked them to come forward with the, the, their knowledge of the misconduct in September 2016, they responded by saying people can't just give support in this sort of situation without risk. The help desk is important to a lot of people and to LDA's strategy. So basically she's there expressing fears of whistleblowing because of fears of reprisal, because what else could place the help desk at risk? I mean, she's basically saying we can't report what's happened 
Because if we do, we will suffer reprisal from NHSE and they will close our charitable organisation down because they work within the NHS. They sort of work as a sort of off, off, off group that helps people get uh, treatment for Lyme disease. So that email, again, raised my... Um, my heckles and you know I knew now there was something really dodgy going on because they just basically admitted we can't report the concerns because we're worried about whistleblowing for fear of appraisal. Um, so I submit the evidence file to GMC in the Ombudsman in December 2016. This is where more cover-up starts to happen. GMC completely ignore it. They do what's called a rule four process um, where they just dismiss it out of hand and say there's nothing to see here. Um, PHSO are even slower and they they take longer and longer and longer in that time uh, phso sorry parliamentary and health service ombudsman which which is the ombudsman for short um so it's with the gmc i then submit what's called a rule 12 request which is to ask for a review of their first decision at this point and only at this point they then turn around and say these are very serious allegations of bad faith deceit fraud and collusion which obviously have the potential to pass the fitness to practice threshold. Now, this is a threshold that's a very high bar that GMC sets, where they will only investigate cases where that threshold is passed. And that threshold has to be whereby the doctor could be struck off or have their practice restricted. So my case passed that high threshold, but then they said, we can see no evidence. So they didn't investigate, despite the two emails from the two consultant witnesses, the only witnesses to the misconduct, alluding to what's happened so they completely ignore the emails don't reference them at all and dismiss the case out of hand in the interim with the ombudsman my case goes forwards they do the same thing they dismiss it and again the two emails are never referenced they just are completely ignored again um, so subsequently i had to take the gmc to court to judicial review which i did in september 2017 which I lost, unfortunately, didn't get permission to, uh, to didn't get permission to go forward. So then I issued an appeal at the Court of Appeal in December 2017, which is only now just being heard at the Court of Appeal by Lord Underhill, apparently, because uh, they've asked for some more documents. Um, so that's my case with the GMC at the moment. And the Ombudsman, they um, denied an invest. Basically, they started to investigate it. And I said, you've got to interview the two witnesses, otherwise your investigation is not fit for purpose. They just said, we may or may not interview the witnesses because they do not want to uncover the wrongdoing. So um, they left it at that. And then they said, then they closed the investigation, quote, because I would be disappointed with the outcome. So they said they were going to investigate originally. And I kid you not, their literal explanation for it was, we are not going to investigate anymore because you will be disappointed with the outcome. Now, what, what investigatory body that is fit for purpose would rely on one, one party's displeasure of an outcome not to investigate? There'd be no investigations ever taking place if, if satisfaction of both parties was, was, was the requirement. So they just turned around and said, we're not going to investigate because you'll be dissatisfied with the outcome. Now, the Ombudsman in this country is a well-known toxic dustbin for complaints against government departments, including the NHS. They have extremely wide discretion to act as how they want, so wide that judges are reticent to touch it. And only, I think, two judicial reviews have ever been successful against the Ombudsman. So, in, um, it, so they make their decision not to investigate, ask for a review. That comes back in June 2018 as no, bugger off, we're not going to review it, nothing to see here. So then in September 2000, September 2000, so I, I launched a judicial review against them. Um, 
again, um, and I get permission this time to proceed to an oral hearing, which happened in December, just gone, December 2018. So I'm now at court on oral hearing, arguing my case for why the PHSO should investigate it. And basically the judge agreed they had behaved very badly. They hadn't followed their own set procedures, but they had discretion to close the investigation because I would be dissatisfied with the outcome. This is how wide their discretion is, the ombudsman. And the judge ignored their bad behavior, even though they admitted they did behave badly. But because I was so unhappy with the treatment received by the ombudsman and had been critical towards them in email saying, you must investigate this, you must investigate this. He used that as reasoning for them to close the investigation. And, and this was despite the ombudsman not telling me we had to agree on the scope of the investigation, which is a policy requirement. And that, um, that we had to agree on the scope of the investigation. And if we didn't, then the case wouldn't go forward. Now they never told me I had to agree on the scope and they never set a scope for the investigation. So this is gonna be my claim at the Court of Appeal, which is now going through now. They didn't follow set procedures. Um, and there's various case law around that that I can highlight, which brings up the fact that um, they've acted unreasonably. So basically they have to have acted irrationally or unreasonably or perversely to make a successful claim at judicial review uh, before a court. I believe I've got a strong case. I'm hopeful that if I get permission to go to the Court of Appeal, I, might, I may be successful. But obviously, I'm a litigant in person. No one wants to touch my case because either they think it's so fantastical it can't happen or it's too toxic, or et cetera, et cetera. Because no, basically, nobody wants to believe that three GPs would conspire to leave a patient ill for months and potentially years if they hadn't sought a second opinion. I mean, it's so left field, it's off, off the charts, to be honest. But um, so, so are you saying that you're having difficulty finding legal support, like legal counsel? I can't get, I can't get any legal support anywhere. It's, it's notoriously difficult to make a claim for clinical negligence in the UK anyway. Um, but combining that with what's in effect an Article 3 breach of European Convention on Human Rights, which is a cruel, inhuman treatment that degrades, um, and I've got all the case law, I've found medical cases that support what I'm saying, because basically a doctor has to treat as is medically necessary. If they decline to do so, especially for nefarious reasons, then that is a criminal act. It is so serious. And basically with an Article 2 or Article 3, an absolute right, the state has a duty to investigate cases um, because they are so serious. Now, the judge in the case against the Ombudsman said this should be a matter for the police not for the ombudsman to investigate because they're not a, they're not a quasi criminal organization even though the ombudsman has powers of, of contempt it has powers to compel disclosure of documents it has powers to interview witnesses under oath or affirmation they thoroughly declined to do that with these sole two witnesses to my case because they knew what it would uncover and these two witnesses to my case the lda doctor and the phe doctor if they come forward now three years after the event they are going to be in trouble themselves for not reporting patient harm from three years ago they are going to get themselves into deep mire as well so they don't want to come forward because they're going to risk their careers now through discipline from gmc um, so it's just a legal quagmire nightmare nobody wants to touch it I'm doing it all myself. It's extremely stressful, it takes up your time. You wake up in the morning, it's like a heavy weight on your shoulders. And you know, you're sitting at home, you're tearful, you're depressed, you're sort of anxious, and uh, you can't shake it off. It's not a normal life, Scott. You're just walking around with this weight, and it's just, I, I, I wish for happy days like a relationship breakup or a burglary or something, or you know, just, uh, I've lost my mobile phone or something, something normal. This is, this is just not normal, having three doctors doing this to you. And they're up the road sitting from me 500 yards now, practicing today, pretending to be pillars of the community, 
when they know what they did to me and other patients have to be at risk now because their reputation is paramount. They will harm now to protect their reputations. That they, they cannot admit mistakes and they have serious psychological issues with doing so. And to this such extent that they will willfully demonstrate a lack of insight about recurring patients with the same symptoms that they can't find anything wrong with. They will dismiss rather than reflect on their symptoms of what this could be um, because it's taken so long for them to get a diagnosis, they don't want to admit a mistake. Um, and you cannot have doctors practicing who do not want to admit a mistake because that is highly dangerous. And I know of one other woman who had similar sort of treatment. She was going for two years with what turned out to be cancer. And uh, quote, she said, they just thought I was an overweight middle-aged lady. And they made a pejorative judgment about her that she's nothing wrong with her. And then they eventually refer her and she's got late stage cancer and she dies a few months later. And I said to her, did they, Apologize. Did they acknowledge the symptoms? Nope. No, no apology. Didn't acknowledge the symptoms were related. Didn't do anything. They simply would not admit they'd made a mistake. And this woman died because of that, or at least she died younger than she would have done if it was caught early. And they've left me with a permanent infection because they couldn't admit a mistake after only a few weeks old in 2005, and then willfully refused to reflect on my symptoms over many, many, many years. Doctors like that simply cannot remain in practice. They are a danger and they need to be held to account. And I'm going to do everything in my power to keep going after them, to hold them to account, because you, you, they're damaging people this week, probably. They're hurting, you know, you just cannot be allowed to pass. Good for you, Greg. It takes a, a lot of courage and persistence and motivation uh, to continue doing that in spite of, you know, what you're up against, because you're not just up against these three doctors, you're up against an entire system and multiple levels of that system. Absolutely, absolutely. And they've all, they're all crushing. I mean, they're crushing me. I mean, I'm on Twitter, as you've seen, with lots of other people in a similar position, patients and medics, doctors, who've all basically blown the whistle in some form or another. And they're all being shat on from a great height. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their pensions. They've lost their career. They've lost their families sometimes, their partners, their children, their health, their wealth. It just goes on and on. The, the detrimental list that people suffer because of this is quite incredible. And yet the government knows about it and does nothing about it. There's lots of talk about patient safety and reporting concerns and speak up, but it's all hollow. It is all one big dollop of BS because at the end of the day, the CEOs at NHS Trust are powerful. They do not want their dirty laundry aired in public and they will crush any dissent, even if it's the most obvious patient safety concerns going that um, need, need to be addressed. I mean, there's a case recently, a Dr. Day in England who, um, was a junior doctor and they basically um, argued him out of whistleblower protection because he was raising a whistleblowing case. So they tried to argue in court, spent 700,000 pounds of taxpayers' money, tried to argue all junior doctors out of whistleblower protection to stop his whistleblowing case as a junior doctor going forward. And, and this is what they're up against, you know, I mean, and he had a full legal team and he has temporarily backed out because of the risk of costs of losing. Um, because you don't always get a protective cost order, which means you could be liable. Um, and it's just an absolute nightmare. Whether you're a, a highly skilled medic or, or a patient, you're just stuffed. You're, you're taking on this system. And all these people in these offices have a statutory duty as fit and proper persons to undertake their work to protect patients. It's a statutory duty, first and foremost, to protect patients. So anything that digresses from that is in essence um, not performing their public duty, which is actually unlawful. Um, there are various new regulations to deal with um, 
neglect and ill treatment in a care setting since what's called the Mid-Staffordshire cri crisis that was uh, occurred in England. And, um, and they've also committed misconduct in public office because to willfully not perform your public duty to the detriment of others is misconduct in public office. But the UK police rarely, rarely charge any people in power with that crime, even though in the UK it is widespread. The GMC, the Care Quality Commission, National Health Service England, the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman, the Local Clinical Commissioning Group have all covered this case up. They've all acted with intent to cover up criminal misconduct committed by their own GPs because they do not want it becoming public knowledge. And in doing so, they are committing crimes themselves by not acting as fit and proper persons, uh, which the health regulations state they should. You know, your story would be really hard to believe if it wasn't so rampant, not only in the UK, but just in health systems in general, that uh, arrogance and ego rules uh, over patient safety, patient health. It's mm. all about uh, bankrolling their own bank accounts, their own reputations, their own egos. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, it's patients that suffer and good medics, because good medics either stand still and don't do anything, which makes them feel terrible because they know if they do do something, they're going to suffer. Or those that do are brave enough to stand up and do something, get, get you know, beaten down to the ground and, and left with nothing. So it's a, it's, a vicious, it's a vicious circle just because nobody wants to put their hands up and say, we made a mistake. But most patients just want an admission of a mistake and an apology and will walk away. They're not after huge amounts of money. They're not after anything else. They just want recognition of what's occurred and, um, and an apology. In December 2014, when I knew I had Lyme disease, all those GPs had to do was say, we made a mistake. That would be the end of the matter. But then for the next 12 months, they willfully conspired to deny me the diagnosis and treatment I needed to prevent activation of their mistake or their negligence. And um, I find it hard. I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, sometimes I get tearful and you sit here and you think, I shake my head. It's like, how could doctors do that? I mean, they are doctors, do no harm. And yet they were so willful, so malicious, so cruel that they, that, that they denied me the treatment they must have known I needed. I mean, it's just beyond, I mean, it's criminal and I'm going to have to report the matter to the police as well because and I haven't done so yet because I asked one of the GPs to come forward, the junior partner who was the one corrupted by the two senior partners because she wasn't negligent from 2009 because she wasn't at the surgery until November 2014. So she has no reason to withhold the clinical history, but she did. And so that indicates and informs us of the conspiracy because she was doing it at the behest of the two senior partners. And, um, and uh, she, 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 she carried on doing that and, and, left, and left me, I completely forgot my train of thought I was going to talk about then. Um, so yeah, and, and then they just carried on doing that, Phil, and then the, the, the conspiracy, and I was going to tell the police, I, oh, sorry, I'm, I've got my train back now, Scott. I was going to ask her, to come forward. I sent an email to her asking her to come forward with the misconduct. I would stand up for her because she was set up to do it. I said, you'd be punished, but maybe not suffer the worst sanction, which is to be struck off and you can move forward in your life. Then the senior partner called the police. And so I had the police knocking on my door with what's called a community protection warning for harassment and to protect the community from that harassment. Um, they didn't listen to my evidence because it's doctor against a troublemaker patient. They took her at face value 
and the senior partner made sure this junior doctor wasn't interviewed by the police because she would have found it hard to lie sat before two police officers whereas these two senior partners are professional liars and they could do it so easily no problem with them whatsoever and then i emailed the police after that with a, with a bit of my evidence said look this is what's happened and i got a response back saying if you want to report a genuine crime call 101 so they weren't even registering it as a genuine crime what i was assessing because it's so left field doctors and this cr criminal doctors and this criminal acts just don't go together it's it, it, people can't see that they can't think that they can't believe that because it goes against every sort of stereotype in society so i haven't contacted the police yet for fear of them saying bugger off again but i'm going to have to very soon with the full evidence file and see what happens to be honest because as i will I, what i will do is raise an article three breach which means they are compelled to investigate it because of the absolute right not to suffer that. So you're not getting a proper equitable justice through the justice system. And it seems like you've taken it to the court of public opinion and you're fairly active on Twitter. Um, tell us about your plans moving forward in terms of raising public awareness. Well, I, start, I started on Twitter in April 2018, so not too long ago, because I realized I was getting nowhere. I mean, they were just covering it up and I had no voice. So I joined Twitter to sort of put it out there and um, I realized there's a massive crowd of people out there all experiencing the same problems, which straight away makes you feel better. It takes, it takes the weight off your shoulders because you think, I am not the only one suffering this treatment. I'm not imagining it. It is real. It's happening. And it just gives you solace and support, which is fantastic. And you get nice comments from people. As you know, a few nice words make it go a long way sometimes when you're down in the dumps and having trouble with everything. Um, so the next thing to do really is to carry on using Twitter, forming groups with other people to um, basically attack these organizations who are covering all our cases up. And um, I'm gonna have to do a blog at some point, produce a blog so that it's out there. Um, and um, generally just keep campaigning. I'm with a group called PHSO The Facts, which is a pressure group against the Ombudsman. Um, again, because dozens and dozens and dozens of people are treated the same way by the, by the Ombudsman. Cases are covered up. They reach conclusions not supported by the evidence. They don't look at all the evidence. They don't investigate properly. It's all a scam to give the illusion to the public that we have regulators that protect you, when in fact they will do exactly the opposite, cover up cases, they say it's not in our remit, nothing to do with us, nothing to see here, but they will never report using memorandums of understanding, which they have, to other regulators to say, this is what's happened. We believe there's something to investigate here. So if, you know, if I've gone from the General Medical Council who've covered it up, give the Care Quality Commission all the evidence, they will see the evidence and they won't say, well, that looks a bit funny. GMC should have investigated it. Let's email the GMC and tell them, look, we've seen the same evidence. We think you should investigate this. They don't do that. They're in their own silos and they ignore each other, do not tread on each other's toes for fear of losing their job, basically, because they don't want to kick up a fuss and be called, in effect, internal whistleblowers within the CQC or the GMC because they don't want to come forward because it's all about a paycheck at the end of the day and mortgages. These people in these jobs have those responsibilities and they don't want to lose their job by telling the truth. I mean, it's a huge, huge scandal in this country and as you say, Scott, in um, many other countries around the world these cover-up you know patients just aren't getting um, justice so now that you're up against this huge uh, system and all of the mechanisms within it that are really working against you on those days when you're like this is just so hard mm. what do you say to yourself uh, and or what do you do to uh, 
uh, keep yourself going? Well, to be honest with you, Scott, the last, the, last, um, the last few months have been really, really difficult. I've been down. I've started drinking and smoking again. Um, I've stopped exercising. And um, I gave up smoking for seven years. And this, all this has just brought it back. And it's just so sad for my poor lungs. Um, but you're just utterly, utterly depressed. Um, you feel suicidal one day. You feel anxious the next day. You feel overwhelmed. You feel like... You doubt yourself. You think, am I making this up? Did this not happen? You know, it just brings huge amounts of self-doubt and anxiety. And some days I deal with it better. If you get one little um, blink of good news from the court or something else happens that you found another avenue to explore. But most of the time you just feel this crushing weight and I'm well behind with my court work. I mean, I haven't been doing that, which I should be doing because I just don't want to face up to it. Um, you just avoid it and you, you, you sleep you can't sleep so i'm drinking at night to sleep um because if, if i don't drink i cannot get to sleep I, it goes over it in my head i just cannot get it out of my head um i'm irritable i'm angry but that also has something to do with the lyme disease they have hurt me so much scott mm -hmm. yeah they've traumatized you and the trauma's ongoing i recognize mm -hmm. th those sounds like symptoms of trauma you're trying to deal with what you're experiencing it, i mean it just they just <sighs> They don't care. I mean, they just don't care. And it's, uh, it's very difficult. It is. Uh, so what makes you feel good? How do you reward yourself? I can't remember feeling happy, Scott. I, I, can't, I can't remember laughing abandoningly and happy. I, I cannot remember it. Partly because of the Lyme disease for many, many years and being isolated, et cetera, et cetera. But especially since this has all happened, I discovered the motive and what they did. Um, I can't remember laughing. I cannot remember the last time I last time I laughed. I can't remember the last time I was happy, where the world felt um, normal. Um, it just affects your health, makes you just, I don't know, it just, it's, it's, a, it's a bloody nightmare to be perfectly frank. And um, there's no way around it until it's, it's remedied, until there's some sort of justice delivered. It just goes on and on. There's no easing up. It doesn't go away. You don't forget about it. And obviously I can't forget about it because I've got bloody Lyme disease, which is what they gave me. Um, it just goes on and on and on and on. And it's, it's thoroughly depressing. You can't hold down uh, relationships. You, can't, you don't want to socialize with people. And again, that's partly Lyme, partly this issue. But um, it just compounds what I'm already suffering from, which is the Lyme disease. On top of that, to have this criminal cover-up. And all these people know the harm and detriment they're causing me and know these doctors are dangerous because of what they did, and they're happy to just let it carry on. I mean, they are borderline. Some of these people in these high positions in the NHSE, et cetera, are borderline sociopaths, and I think that's, that's fairly common standard practice. These people at the top have got there by being a bugger, and they stay there by being an even worse bugger, and they don't care. Um, and I think they literally, if you did a psychiatric evaluation of lots of these people in top positions of power, they would have sociopathic traits. Um, and I think, you know, that's just shown by their actions, to be honest. What are the uh, mental health services like in your area, specifically around trauma? Um, I wouldn't know because I haven't accessed them. I mean, my GPs, my new GPs know what I'm going through, but they don't want to discuss it because they know their colleagues across the road have done this. So they don't want to discuss it because they sort of don't want to believe it happened. They don't want to believe their colleagues could be guilty of that. 
mm-hmm. and they're certainly not standing up for me against them. They're leaving me to do everything. So I try to raise it in consultations, but they quickly dismiss it and say, we can't talk about that or whatever. But of course that is part of the psychological trauma I'm going through, which I can't address with them because I'm within the same clinical commissioning group with a practice that's 300 yards from where the original practice was. So um, they all know. They, they sort of give me a look as if to say, well, I'm not sure you're telling the truth or, or in disbelief. But I think in their heart of hearts, they know what I'm saying is true because um, why else would I be doing this? You, know, you, you, st- you don't put yourself through all this stuff unless, unless it is true. Exactly, yeah. Well, Greg, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I want to follow up with you, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a few months or whenever something significant happens so we can update folks on what's going on with you. Absolutely. Um, I love that, Scott. Thanks very much. I also want to include in the show notes any links like your Twitter handle and any other links that you want folks to know about that you think would be helpful. And then I would also like to know what's one thing that you can do nice for yourself today? as a reward for doing this, sharing this information, because this is very helpful for people. That's a very good question, Scott. One thing I'll do for myself today is probably go for a walk in a minute or something. Um, Stop smoking, that's what I should bloody do. Stop bloody smoking, that is not good at all. Um, But just don't give up, you know, just say to other people, just don't give up. If you know you're telling the truth and and you've got to protect other patients or whatever, don't give up, just keep going, as long as you can keep your sanity and it doesn't affect everything else, you know. It's a very fine balancing act between the two, going full pelt and also remaining a normal human being when you're trying to deal with such extreme actions. Um, it's very, very hard. But uh, yeah, that's probably a walk, I'd say. Scott would be the best medicine for me right now. And yeah. what, what about yourself with your, with your ME? Are you, are you, you housebound or do you get out? Or? Yeah, I'm pretty much housebound, yeah, so I can't really go for walks. But uh, I've got a golden retriever, so unconditional love. Perhaps I should get a dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're very therapeutic. Indeed they are, so indeed they are. Well, listen, Scott, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Greg. I'm so glad that uh, we got a chance to chat about your story, and I'm sure that uh, many folks will be affected by your story and also will recognize that maybe that's what's going on with them too. Well, it takes a brave and determined person to take on the United Kingdom's healthcare system in the face of their delaying, denying, and denigration of of a patient. We heard uh, from Gregory how it's had an impact on him, not only physically, but also emotionally and socially. And unfortunately, Gregory's experience is not unique. It is, in fact, the rule, not the exception. If you are experiencing distress from your own medical error and require support from an experienced counselor, you can book an online video appointment with me at my website, remediescounseling.com. You can also subscribe to Medical Error Interviews, the podcast on iTunes and leave a kind comment. You can become a patron of the podcast by going to Patreon slash Medical Error Interviews. If you become a premium patron, you get early access to video versions of the podcast. I'm Scott Simpson, and I'm asking, how have you rewarded yourself today?